That's Stevie Wonder. I'm Tavis Smiley. And you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. It's always hard. I say it all the time. Whenever we play Stevie, it's hard to step on Stevie, man. I tell you. Uh, But the show must go on, and uh, this is an hour that I've been looking forward to. Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, the man who directed the prosecution of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd and ultimately helped to put Chauvin and all the other do-nothing police officers behind bars, is our guest in this hour for the hour. Ellison had the presence of mind to keep a personal trial diary, which is now a book, Break the Wheel. Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. The book publishes today, and I'm honored to have today, Minnesota AG, Keith Ellison. Keith Ellison, how are you, my friend? Hey, great to be with you, my friend. How are you doing today? Man, if I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I am delighted to be uh, alive, delighted to be on air, delighted to be in conversation with you for the hour, and thank you. I've uh, written a few books in my life. I know what Pub Day is like. Yes, and Yeah, I've done a few. <laughs> so I know what Pub Day is like, <laughs> and I'm honored. I'm honored that you chose to be on KBLA Talk 1580 on the day your book actually dropped. So thank you, uh, Keith, for the opportunity to talk to you. I appreciate you, man. Well, thank you, and congrats on your own uh, very important uh, anniversary that's coming up. No, thank you, man. We appreciate it. Almost two years of uh, this black-owned and operated talk radio station, the only one west of Mississippi, and we're excited about year, sure. uh, about celebrating what we've done in two years and getting ready for year three. So thank you, thank you, thank you for that. Let, 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 me, let, me, let me make the okay. most of our time. I want to jump right in. I, I was thinking um, last night, uh, 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 A.G. Ellison, about the following. Um, we've talked on this program in, in recent days uh, about the uh, Daniel uh, Penny uh, trial forthcoming in New York City. This is the white the white brother who choked Jordan Neely, the black brother, to death on the subway train. Uh, I know Alvin Bragg. I love Alvin Bragg. You know, he's he's a, he's a good brother. But <clears throat> one could call it taking his time to make sure his his ducks were aligned, and I am mad at him for that. But as you know, there were protests all over New York because it took a week for the Manhattan DA's office to bring charges against uh, Daniel Penny for the choking death of Jordan Neely. And as you also know, um, the Republicans have rallied behind Daniel Penny and they're raising millions of dollars for his defense. That's another issue. But it took a week to bring those charges uh, against the, the person who killed Jordan Neely, choked him to death on that subway train. I go to uh, that's in New York. They go down, let me go down to Georgia. Ahmad Arbery. Mm-hmm. It took a long time, sure. as you recall. I'm oh, telling, yeah. I ain't telling you nothing you don't know. I'm saying this for the benefit mm-hmm. of, of framing this for the audience. It took a long time mm-hmm. for charges to be brought uh, against uh, those three persons, those three white males who killed Ahmad Arbery in Georgia as he was running. And that thing got passed from one DA to another DA. It got passed around. Nobody wanted to bring those right. charges against Ahmad Arbery. That's in Georgia. Let me go to Florida. It took a while for charges to be brought against George Zimmerman in the killing of Trayvon Martin. What's my point? You get it. Oftentimes, when it comes to black folk being murdered, it takes the adjudicating authorities, those with the control, some time to bring charges. Why and how did you come to the decision uh, to move forward with those charges against Chauvin and the other officers when you know full well that prosecuting cops is not easy business? Well, in a word, uh, we looked at the facts, we looked at the law, and it became clear to us. We did ask folks for 
a week or so to to give us a chance to go through the file, mm-hmm. but it didn't take a long time. You you could add to the list Laquan McDonald. Sure. I mean, uh, in Chicago, I mean that that case. I think four years went by between the time mm-hmm. that the shooting incident happened and the charges were brought. Um, you know, there's no doubt that you're right, and it's why people have a distrust of our criminal justice system, and it's part and parcel of, you know, why you know we feel we have an unequal justice system, and why the the system lacks legitimacy if there's not a sense of equal justice under the law. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of why I, that's kind of why I wrote this book there, Tavis, because. We're trying to push this country toward equal justice under under the law. We're trying to say, look, this is your constitutional promise. This is what y'all signed up for. This is the time to live up to it. And yeah. so, you know, we took our time to make sure the charges were right, but we didn't take four years or four months or any of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. George Floyd was killed on um, on May 26th. Within about a week, we were moving out quick So because mm-hmm. it didn't take that long to see that the facts uh, warranted the the charge of second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. We're going to talk for the entire hour here about your book, so we'll get into that, I promise, in a moment here. But I just want to ask some broad questions to begin, and then we'll jump into that uh, straight away. Um, When you look back on it now, uh, we are approaching the anniversary of the death of George Floyd. When you look look back on it now, uh, and what you and your office were able to do, and for that matter, when others got involved on civil rights violations, they were successful as well. But when you look back on that, to my mind, this may be uh, regarded into the future as a watershed moment in holding police accountable. I am not naive. It is still more difficult than not to successfully prosecute cops. Uh, I get that. But I think it's going to be a watershed moment historically when we look back on it. That's my take. When you look back on how successful these prosecutions were, um, what's your read in the rearview mirror? Well, honestly, I'm really grateful that we were that, that we worked hard and we got those convictions for the sake of the family, for the sake of the victims. But if I'm real straight with you, brother, and I and I can only be real straight with you, I'm, I'm thinking that like, look, you know, why haven't we passed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act yet? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What 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 what's taking what's taking the the people in Congress so long to deliver simple simple uh you know accountability on on their part? I mean, our 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 team stepped forward and did what they were supposed to do. The family stepped up and did what they were supposed to do. The protesters stepped up and did what they were supposed to do. And yet Congress has not stepped and did what it was was supposed to do. Now, I don't blame Cory Booker and I certainly don't blame Karen Bass, I think they did all they could do. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what about the other side of the, the of the aisle? You know, they were supposed to do the right thing, and they did not. So I guess I guess what I'm left with, brother, really, quite honestly, is a sense that, you know, the people who are in a position to make meaningful social, political, legislative changes won't do it, while those of us who operate um, – at less than a national level, mm. are doing all that we can, including including jurors, including yeah. journalists. Uh, you're reporting on this story. You're having me on today. You're trying to get the word out. But these guys have got to move. You know, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is not passed yet. should have been passed three years ago. Yeah. 
Our guest in this hour is Minnesota, uh, Minnesota Attorney General uh, Keith Ellison. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, he had the presence of mind, uh, and I, I'm, I'm jealous of Keith because, I mean, we've known each other for years, but I'm jealous uh, jealous of, of, of A.G. Ellison. i got to stop calling him Keith. He is the attorney general. He's not just my friend. He's the attorney general in this conversation. Um, A.G. Ellison had the presence of mind to do something I wish I'd done a couple times in my life. I've written a bunch of books, but there were certain moments in my life where I wish I had done better at keeping a journal uh, because that would have allowed for uh, other books to have been written or perhaps the ones I've written to, be, to have been written better uh, if I had the presence of mind as he did to keep a journal. Well, his journal is now a book. It's out today. It's called Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. And I want to get all up in his business, into his personal journals when we come forward uh, with A.G. Keith Ellison out of Minnesota. But right now he's on KBLA Talk. This Thursday is the third anniversary of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are honored in this hour to have the Attorney General for that great state of Minnesota, Keith Ellison, as our guest. He has a new book out today. It's called Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. This book is based on, made up of many of his personal journal entries that he was keeping uh, his personal diary, if you will, uh, during the ordeal that his office was bringing these charges and prosecuting the case against Derek Chauvin and those other uh, do-nothing officers. So I'm honored to have A.G. Ellison on with us in this hour. Let me go. Let me come right to the book now. We'll spend the rest of our hour unpacking this. Um, I, I am curious as to whether or not you always keep a journal, um, A.G. Ellison, or whether or not this was something um, that was out of the ordinary for you. No, it's kind of a practice for me. Mm -hmm. I, I just kind of always keep journals, you know, um, because, and they're not necessarily for a book. It's just like, sure. I like, I like the idea of like, okay, so we were talking about this two weeks ago. Let me go back to that and say what. You went off, you went off, you went off, off mic for me. I can't, you, I know you're on your phone, but all of a sudden you, we start, we lost your audio all of a sudden. Let me get miles to get you back on audio here uh so we can hear you clearly and we'll continue our conversation in just a second here um again our guest is uh minnesota attorney general keith ellison and we want to get this phone line straight his book again is out today it's called break the wheel ending the cycle of police violence i can tell you that on thursday as a matter of fact um we have a number of guests uh on the actual anniversary of uh george floyd's murder we have a number of guests on our program on thursday to help us commemorate um, that anniversary three years later and talk about uh, where we are uh, in this moment uh, when it comes to uh, police accountability in this country. You heard um, Keith Ellison, Attorney General Ellison, say moments ago uh, that um, my word, not his, uh, that he finds it, we both, we all find it, I think, shameful. There's, that's the right word, shameful, frankly, that Congress has not as yet passed that George Floyd Policing Act. Uh, that's a real problem. Uh, and so um, a lot has been done in this country. Uh, I think uh, progress in some ways has been made in the three years. And believe it or not, it's been three years already. That just seems really fast to me. I don't know about you. Uh, but a lot has been accomplished in the three years since the murder of George Floyd. And a lot has not been done, including, of course, at the top of that list, the George Floyd Policing Act um, has not has not passed. Um, but we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll uh, have an assessment on Thursday on the actual anniversary of his of his death. Three years ago, we'll have a great conversation on Thursday about where we are, where we are not. And in, and, and frankly, um, the reality that so many corporations and others who promise to do better 
after his murder uh, are doing 180s. We were talking just the other day about diversity, equity, and inclusion. All these companies that made all these commitments to do better, support black media, et cetera, et cetera. All kind of folk now are doing 180s and what they promised to do three years ago. That conversation on Thursday, uh, the third anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. I think we got the AG back now. His phone line should be are working well. So uh, I, I'd ask you, and we, we, we had lost your audio, I'd ask you, um, AG Ellison, um, whether or not it was a practice for you to keep a journal or not, or whether this was something uniquely different. Yeah, I keep journals on nearly everything. I just fill up notebooks all the time. I got uh, boxes of them. You know, my wife asked me, you know, how many, we got to, you know, we got to get rid of all this stuff, man. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, hun, you know, this, you know, so I just keep them, I just keep them, man. And it's, I make it a practice and, you know, sometimes I make lists, to-do lists. Sometimes mm-hmm. I just write impressions of how I was feeling. Cause you can, you can dig back in your, um, in your calendars to figure out what you were doing, yeah. but you need a journal to figure out how about to remember how you were feeling. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, so I just keep them and I recommend it as a practice because it's certainly has helped me. It's add to my junk pile, but it's not, has not failed me in terms of just recollecting what was going on inside my heart and head in a given moment. Yeah. So, so give me a sense. I think I get it, but give me a sense then of how uh, your wife's protestations, notwithstanding how, how going back in, yeah, how going back into those boxes and recalling what you felt on any given day as you all were prosecuting Derek Chauvin, um, give me a sense of how that aided and abetted in the writing of the book, break the wheel. Well, you know, there were times, you know, we had internal differences of opinion, mm-hmm. right? And um, I probably would have forgot those. Uh, and, of course, when you get a lot of smart people in a room, you know, they're going to have difference of, opinion, mm-hmm. difference of opinions. But, but I believe that all of us together are smarter than any one of us alone. And so I tell you this, one thing that we didn't all agree on is whether or not nine-year-old Judea Reynolds should testify. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking about that. I remember, you know, us just, you know, kind of going over that because whenever I lead a group, I never say I'm the boss. This is the way it's going to be. I say, what does everybody think? Mm-hmm. Tell me why I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. And and I think to my and I remember thinking to myself, the kids in Birmingham, Alabama, got out there and they marched for their freedom. Nine years old, eight years old, ten years old, mm-hmm. because they were under Jim Crow segregation too. And so part of the liberation, part of the experience of freeing yourself got to be shared by all older people, mid aged people, and even the kids. Cause you know, Judea had to witness all of that. Mm-hmm. And then it had the effect. Judea testifying had the effect of allowing her to be a part of accountability, which I think was something that was freeing for her, you know, and folks thinking, Oh, she's too little. She's too young. I said, well, you know, we're going to bring her in. We're going to get her used to it. We're going to show her what the courtroom is like. We're going to tell her where she's going to sit. And she will do fine. And she did do fine. And I think she's nine when she's 19, when she's 29, when she's 39, she will be able to remember, I helped justice happen. I helped accountability happen. And I wasn't just a bystander because I was a child. I was a part of the instrumentality of a more perfect America. And I want that for her because I think it's liberational. Yeah. I think it's something that'll, that'll that'll help her children's children sort of heal and deal with uh, what she witnessed in so many years. 
I assume, and I recall her testimony was riveting, uh, I assume in retrospect, uh, and you write about it, of course, in the book, you think that was the right decision made by your team to, in fact, put this nine-year-old on the stand in that case. I think it was the right decision because one thing it showed is that if a nine-year-old could see that what these officers were doing to George Floyd was wrong, how come those trained officers who had completed act, you know, the academy didn't see it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we showed you had classes in CPR. You took classes in, uh, in like, bi- and like bias and, and uh, unintended and, and implicit bias. You did all this training, and you could not see what was apparent to a child. And so that was part of how we were showing the jury that what these officers did was, in fact, unreasonable and not uh, within the law and was a crime. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I'm sure that we did the right thing. And But I don't have any complaints about the people who disagree with me, and I don't name them because yeah. I don't want to shame or embarrass them. I'm just trying to show that we you know that, that we did sort through all these things. And if you're going to try to lead a group doing a complex and difficult thing, you must be open to different points of view. And people who disagree with you, they're not bad and they're not wrong. They just They're just trying to represent a point of view and all points of view are necessary to get to the right answer. Yeah. Um, let me, let me try this out on you for size. I want, I want to get your take on this. Um, there are those who would look at the tape, um, the video of the murder of a George Floyd. And I've said many times that I was able to watch it once, maybe twice, and I couldn't watch it anymore. And the reason I couldn't watch it is because when he get to the point of that tape where he's calling out for his mama, I, right. I, I I couldn't do it, man. I couldn't do it. Uh, I suspect I, I suspect if I were in that situation, I would have done the same thing. Somebody once asked me in an interview uh, years ago. I've never forgotten. And I've been interviewed more times than I can count, obviously, uh, as have you. But somebody asked me a question I've only been asked once in my entire career. And that was, and I don't even know where the question came from, why they asked it, but it was a, an arresting question. The question was, Mr. Smiley, um, if you were on the verge of taking your last breath, what is the last voice you'd want to hear in your ear? Mm. It's a powerful question, man. And I paused for a second, and for me it was pretty clear. If if I'm taking my last breath, the last voice I want to hear is that of my mama. I want to hear my mama's voice yeah. one last time. And I thought about mm-hmm. that when I saw that videotape of George Floyd calling out for his mama, who we all know had already been, she was already deceased. I mean, his mama, right, his right. mama, his mama had been dead, as we say, had had, had been gone. Yep. But he's still yep. so connected to her in that moment. It was spiritual for me. It was spiritual that his mother was already deceased and he's calling for his mother as if she's alive. He, he He's That's calling right. for her in that moment. That was a spiritual thing for me, but I couldn't watch the tape anymore. I, I'm raising this because there are those who watch that tape and say the evidence was so abundantly clear that with all due respect to Attorney General uh, Keith Ellison, mm-hmm. that case was a slam dunk. He should have won that case. It was a slam mm-hmm. dunk. But you and I both yeah. know there's all kind of other cases where there was videotape. And, sure. and, and and they didn't get a conviction. It wasn't a slam dunk. I raise all that to ask whether or not there was any point in this process, as you were writing in your journals, which became this book, Out Today, Break the Wheel, you had thoughts about whether or not this was, in fact, a slam dunk. You know, Tavis, there was never a moment I thought it was a slam dunk because I remember watching the state of uh, the state of California prosecuting yeah. uh, those officers in the uh, Rodney King case, mm-hmm. and that verdict went the wrong way. I mean, 58 brutal blows, 
it just seemed like the most inhumane thing in the world. It seems so obvious, and yet the jury goes the wrong way, in my opinion. But then what about in uh, in, in the Walter Scott case, oh, the yeah. jury hangs, and that, you know, they, 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 the officer stands there, assumes a target shooter stance and guns that man down. And then, you know, look uh, in the Laquan McDonald, they do ultimately um, convict, the jury does, but it takes three years. Mm-hmm. Eric Garner has yet to see any justice. I mean, the, the, so the, so the, I knew that this jur- that this videotape was no guarantor of anything. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I knew that, uh, that, that, that we could not rely on the videotape. In fact, Tavis, what we did is we set up the case without the without the video and then implemented the video to augment and supplement the testimony so that what jurors were experiencing is the recounting by another human being mm-hmm. and then just to say now look to show you I'm going to show you what I was saying and then we put on the video and that's how I think you've got to prosecute these cases you cannot just say push play and then the case is over couldn't be more wrong there was video in the um, Fernando Castile case. Mm-hmm. You'll remember, you know, you'll remember that. Mm-hmm. And uh, clearly, kept Fernando Castile's like, hey, look, you know, you have a gun permit, uh, and blam, 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 kills him dead, walks. Mm-hmm. So that video, you know, I never thought it was it was a winner. In fact, I thought what it did is it shot people's expectations sky high, which made our job that yeah. much harder. No. I hear you. No, I hear you. That, that makes sense. That's why I was asking the question because uh, it's it, not a slam dunk just because you got videotape, as you well know. Our guest is Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison. His book is out today. It's called Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. And when we come forward, I want to come right to that and uh, ask him point blank whether or not he thinks that the success his office had in prosecuting Derek Chauvin and those, others, and those other officers is part of the process of ending the cycle of police violence. I can, I, I could debate him all day long with a bunch of other evidence uh, since the murder of George Floyd that we ain't done nothing to end the cycle of police violence. But it's his book, Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. We'll talk more about it when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Have you here on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. Our guest in this hour is Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, author of a book out today called Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. Um, I suspect uh, for the rest of his life, he'll always be known as the man who successfully prosecuted Derek Chauvin and those other cops uh, for the murder of George Floyd. By the way, the anniversary of that murder is this Thursday, three years this Thursday, believe it or not. But prior to becoming AG, uh, I knew him when he was a member of Congress, uh, the first Muslim person elected to Congress. Now there are a few. Uh, I'll ask him about that in just a second. He served six terms as part of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, later becoming a deputy chair of the Democratic National Committee. So he had a history long before becoming AG, uh, a brilliant history, uh, a great history of work and witness dedicated to our people and to progressive causes. And you are listening, of course, to Unapologetically Progressive Talk Radio, so he fits right in with what we're doing around here. Uh, but uh, but uh, A.G. Ellison, let me let me pivot just for a second. We'll come back to the book. You were the first Muslim elected sure. to Congress, uh, but obviously, uh, and I think thankfully not the last. What do you make of that? Well, you know, uh, it just goes to show that um, you know people come. Pe- talent comes in all shapes and sizes. I mm-hmm. mean, when I started, there was only me. Now there are three Muslims in Congress, and two of them are women. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Andre Carson is on the Intelligence Committee. There were people who were all upset about a Muslim guy like Andre being on the Intelligence Committee. But Andre has a long history of doing intelligence and protecting this country, former police officer. 
and so he was well qualified. It just goes to show that people always want to figure out a way to exclude somebody, but, you know, they can't do it. And then we just got to keep on keeping on. And, you know, I'm going to tell you, I have a special thanks to the Black Caucus because the Black Caucus, you know, quite honestly, most of them come from a Christian background, but they were always by the side of us who were uh, who were Muslim. Mm-hmm. And, they, and, you know, Andre was a great member and so was Ilhan Omar and even Rashida Tlaib, who is Arab-American, represents a majority black community in Detroit. And uh, the black community, uh, the black caucus always said, you know, we're going to defend these people. In fact, when they attacked us, it was Barbara Lee and Maxine Waters. Jim Clyburn was the first ones out the gate writing letters saying, you back off these, off these folks. These are our folks. Mm-hmm. And they can worship anywhere they want to. And I said, and it made me really proud, you know. So I'll say that, um, you know, you get, we, we, got a, we got a lot of folks who want to serve, and you ought to be able to serve your, your country, your city, your state. If that is your choice, and your religion shouldn't matter. Your values should. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what really should matter. But, you know, look, man, we have had six mosque burnings in Minnesota in the last several months. Mm. We have a, we're having a, another spike in hate crimes, and that doesn't even begin to talk about the anti-Asian hate. You know, we've seen an uptick in anti-Semitism, shootings at synagogues, church burnings and shootings. You know, um, we've got to, we can't take our eyes off the ball. You know, we've got to keep on pushing for tolerance, inclusion, and we got to prosecute these people who would murder and harm our fellow citizens. Yeah. What what's behind to the extent that you and your office knows at this point, what's behind these multiple mosque burnings in your state? Well, I think that there are people who just hate the idea that uh that uh, some people worship different than them. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, one group we we caught them uh one they drove all the way up from uh Illinois where they were called the White Rabbit Militia and they bombed a mosque in Bloomington, Minnesota, bombed it. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, the world doesn't know much about it. The news didn't even make it out of Minnesota, but took bombs and blew up a mosque. It didn't hurt anybody. Easily could have, though. Uh, so what's behind it? Hate, same things behind yeah. Mother Emanuel shooting. Yeah. Same things behind the Powell High um, uh, synagogue shooting. Uh, and so, look, you're not going to stop black, Muslim, Jewish, Asian, Women, you're not going to stop these people from participating, so you might as well stop being so hateful because your hate is not going to stop us from moving forward. No, I love that. I love that. Um, let me ask before I get back inside this book here, um, whether or not, as I sort of uh, intimated a moment ago, the country knows you now as the Attorney General of uh, Minnesota who successfully prosecuted Derek Chauvin and those other do-nothing cops. You will go down in history. You'll be remembered and highly regarded for successfully uh, leading uh, the team uh, to prosecute those cops. Um, if I know there's a lot more in your future, uh, and I'm, and I'm ready to support you in it. (laughs) But, uh, if, if you, um, were known mostly for the rest of your life and for time eternal as the guy who successfully prosecuted these cops, would that be okay with you? Oh yeah. You know, I'm gonna tell you, man, you know, you know, Tavis, you write about a lot of spiritual topics Mm -hmm. and I know you'll understand what I'm saying. You know, um, I'm just glad glad God used me to be of service in this situation. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, I'm I'm not a ambitious person for my own profile. Um, I'm not one who needs to be seen, right? I'm just, you know what? I mean, my mom, you know, who 
died March uh, 2020, only a few months before the death of George Floyd. You know, she was a service person. Her father before her was a service-oriented person. And so we're just trying to uphold a family tradition when where we try to step up and meet the needs of the community. And, uh, you know, MLK said anybody can be great because anybody can serve. That's right. I take that to heart. I take that to heart. So whether the world knows me or don't know me, I just want to be a part of service. Uh, and I'm glad that I got to be a part of this service. Yeah. It's a great MLK quote. And because you went there, let me let me put the rest of it on it because, you know, the whole thing. Let's lay the whole thing out. Because that last part, is, is, that last part is good as the first part. Anybody can be great. Because anybody can serve. All it takes mm -hmm. is a heart full of grace and a soul mm -hmm. generated by love. That's the whole thing. I love that thing. All it takes is a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Could nobody put mm -hmm. it down like MLK did? Dr. King is a bad man, uh, and I, I I I love that particular piece. Um, let me let me you, you mentioned your you mentioned your mother. I mentioned earlier that George Floyd. I can't watch that videotape. George Floyd's on that tape three years ago. Uh, this Thursday, mm -hmm. calling out for his mother. Um, now I learned that your mother passed just a couple of months before you had to take on this case. Um, how, sure. how, how in your state of grieving did you stay focused? He's calling for his mom, and you had just lost your mother. How did you stay focused, uh, and, and what, what do you recall when you look back on your diary entry, entries about how you were trying to navigate the case but missing your mama at the same time? Yeah, man, you know, that's a really good question because my mom was on my mind throughout this. My mom was raised by uh, some people who really believed in service. My mom would have been absolutely appalled by what happened to George Floyd. She would have been telling me, what are you going to do about it? Mm -hmm. You you know, and, and, and I mean, that's the kind of woman that she was. You know, my mother was not one of them people who said, oh, baby, stay out of trouble because, you know, no, she'd be like, you know, I expect you to be trying to do something to help, you know, mm -hmm. and I, you know, you will remember the tragedy of Pulse nightclub. Remember that? Time? Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. Orlando, Florida. Yeah. yeah. So what happened is I, I think, I think I'm right. Correct me if I'm wrong, but John Lewis and them led a group to take over the house floor to protest that mass shooting. Mm -hmm. And, and so it was on the news that John Lewis and them was on the house floor she, my mom looked at that TV camera. And she said, well, where's my boy? She didn't see me down there. So she calls my office. And, she, and, and my, my, the secretary walks to the door. She's like, your mom wants you on the house floor. And I'm like, okay. You know, yeah, yes, ma'am. That's my mom. Yeah, I love that story. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so my mom, but she's about that, man. And, and, and the other thing, like my mom, you know, so for my family is from uh, Natchez Parish, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Everybody's Catholic, very Catholic community, uh, black Catholics. Uh, and uh, so she uh, was one of those people who would who believed that, that you had to be of service. You had to do right by your neighbor, by your community, by your by your your family. And so she was one of them people who I mean, her dad was organizing black voters in the 50s. Yeah. I mean, they, they were burning crosses across the street from the house. They wouldn't sell my grandfather gasoline. He had to put tractor fuel in his in his car because he was what they call stirring up a fuss by organizing black voters mm. back in them days. They, mm. you know, they, they were, they, you know, that's the kind of people who raised me. And the expectation is that if there's something 
to, to make the world better, that I better be part of it. Yeah. You're part of a grand legacy, uh, uh, Keith Ellison. You were part of a grand legacy, and your mother sounds like my mother, I, I, but I'm tickled by that story. Her, her son is a member of Congress at the time, and she sees John Lewis and others on the floor protesting this shooting at this nightclub, and she calls his office, baby, get your behind down to the floor. I don't see you on C-SPAN on the floor of the house. Only a black mother could do that, as I said, uh, with a heart generated by love. Um, you lead. You lead with love. When we come forward, more about this new book out today, Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence, written by the Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, who you're listening to right now on KBLA Talk 1580. Minnesota AG Keith Ellison, you wrote the book out today, Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. So what say you? How would you situate the success of your prosecution of Derek Chauvin and, and those other officers as part of ending this cycle of police violence. How do you situate that? I would call it a necessary but insufficient um, part of the solution. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we had lost the case, it would have been a setback in my view. Um, but, it, but, but having won the case, it doesn't get us there, right? I mean, mm -hmm. since then we've seen literally hundreds of uh, officer-involved shootings. We said the Tyree Nichols matter, which was terrible and just absolutely disgusting. Mm -hmm. But I'll say this. The, us winning that case means that jurors are willing to listen to uh, uh, a prosecution and convict. Um, jurors are open to it. Uh, it means that some prosecutorial offices are stepping up their game, doing more than they did in the past. It means that on the local level and on the state level, we have seen some important legislative advances. But the truth is, Tavis, we have the numbers have not gone down, brother. They mm -hmm. haven't. Mm -hmm. We just got to be honest about that. The numbers now, just because the numbers haven't down, gone down, doesn't mean nobody's doing anything. People are still trying, but we but we have not yet pushed this problem down, and we've got to because one of the biggest problems is not just the loss of life of the victim, and that is the first most important thing. But it is the fact that it erodes trust between police and the communities they are responsible for protecting. Right. And if Miss Johnson is like, I don't know if I should call nine one one because you know what happened last time. We don't. We don't need that. We 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 black communities are often over policed but underprotected. And you know we're you know I, you talk to a black pastor it's like, look, I'm the one doing the funerals. Mm -hmm. I need to be able to have a relationship with the police, but I don't have one because people are scared of them. And people who would commit crimes know this, and it allows them to act even worse. Yeah. So this break, so we've got to cure, we've got to fix this problem, uh, and it will be, I think it starts with prosecuting people, whether they have a badge or not, firing people who violate departmental rules, and then after you do those two things and make sure people can expect that, then you can implement like training and other things that will make a meaningful difference. But at this point, we have not pushed the numbers down. Yeah. I'm disappointed Congress has not stepped up and done its part. It needs to. But, you know, we're, we have, we're not there, brother. Yeah. We're just not. Let me ask you right quick, watching my clock, and I want to do three other things right quick. Um, re remind me, um, what kind of pushback, to the extent you did, um, what kind of pushback did you get from the police union in, in, in prosecuting these officers? Well, um, they spent... Um, they spent hundreds of thousands, if not millions, to defeat me in my election. Yeah, 
You know, I, we just won by 20,000 votes. My last election, we won by 100,000 votes. We just won this one by 20,000 votes. Mm. And, brother, they were, running, they were running ads against me, calling me a friend of the criminal and all this. My opponent had never stepped foot in a courtroom, never prosecuted a soul. Uh, I had prosecuted plenty of criminals who hurt people, and they choose this guy over me. Why? Because I prosecuted Derek Chauvin. This punishment, don't you dare prosecute any of us, no matter how guilty they may happen to be. Yeah. I'm like, I'm sorry. You know, we're going we're gonna to prosecute criminals. And uh, Derek Chauvin's not a, he was a criminal more than a cop. I never prosecuted a cop. I prosecuted only criminals, mm. right? Yeah. You, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I like that and distinction. And if he didn't violate? Yeah. Right. If yeah. the guy, he's breaking the law, what do you want? Yeah. I believe most police officers want to serve people, help people, protect people. In fact, the chief of police was a great witness in our case. He came forward and denounced what Chauvin did. Yeah. Um, and that was great. But what I'd say going forward, we need to get more sergeants, middle managers who will hold police accountable when they commit yeah. violations. Derek Chauvin had 18 prior use of force complaints. How come that? How come he? How did he get to such a high number? And Tra Tavis, he wasn't even the top ten. Wow, that 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 right there, that is arresting. Uh, pardon the pun that he wasn't even top ten. But I hear the distinction that the AG uh, Keith Ellison is making uh, between prosecuting cops versus prosecuting criminals. He's I don't prosecute cops. I prosecute criminals. I love that frame. My friend Connie Rice always says, "Get your frame right." We're prosecuting criminals, not cops. More of Keith Ellison when we come forward. On Ellison said moments ago that our communities are over-policed and yet under-protected. Over-policed and still under-protected. I'm not naive in asking this, uh, A.G. Ellison, with the three or four minutes I have left here. But why do you think that persists? Well, I think one reason it persists is because we've got to organize around safety. I think there's a little bit of reluctance in the black community that insists that we have safety services, public safety, and we have civil and human rights. Black folks have been getting out there protesting, demanding better service, and we've done a great job at it. But I just think we've got to continue our effort to do so. I'm so proud of black communities that have, you know, stopped the violence, ceasefire. All these groups are doing a great job. But public officials have got to step up in, with some resources and back up these efforts so that we can have those safe communities. Mm. At the end of the day, government's supposed to create safe communities. Black communities are not red light districts. We have a right to be safe just as much as anyone else. And I think that, uh, you know, it's because of historic neglect and racism, brother. That's the reason why. Yeah. But I also think that, uh, you know, we just got to keep on pushing. I want to ask two questions, and I got two and a half minutes left. Um, uh, what What's to be done about the arresting point you made a moment ago that Derek Chauvin wasn't even top 10 of the worst cops on that police department, and yet they were still continuing their service unabated? What's to be done about that? We need more accountability from the sergeants and the middle managers in these police departments. If they turn a blind eye to police brutality, you will get more of it. They've got to treat it just like any other violation of, of, of officer responsibility. If an officer wasn't turning in reports, you do something about that. Yeah. Well, if, you, if he's being brutal, you got to do something about that too. Yeah. And if somebody has a bunch of complaints, you got to pull them in and say, what's going on with you? Yeah. What's, what's, what's your take right quick on qualified immunity? Well, I think it's a it's an unnecessary doctrine. I mean, here just so people know what qualified immunity is, it's a judge-made law which says that unless something like this almost exactly has happened before, then you cannot hold a public 
officer, police officer, or any public official responsible for it. Well, you, but you can pass administrative rules and pass even laws that say you can't do this. But if you say qualified immunity, it hasn't happened before, we're not going to hold them responsible. You are letting them off the hook for obeying rules. It's mm-hmm. a bad doctrine. Yeah. doesn't have any good uses. And I don't and I don't support it in the one minute that I have left. Uh, what do you hope the takeaway will be when readers get this book today? It's out today. Break the wheel, ending the cycle of police violence. What's the takeaway you hope? We can do something about this problem and we must do something about this problem to restore trust, to stop the civil unrest that inevitably follows from it. And quite frankly, to deal with our municipal budgets in Minneapolis alone, we've spent over $100 million in the last 10 years on police misconduct cases. Mm-hmm. Think about L.A., think about New York, think about uh, think about all the things we could be doing with that money, but instead mm-hmm. we're paying out police misconduct cases. For so many reasons, we've got to do something about this problem. He's Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison. We are grateful, um, uh, delighted, thrilled that he chose KBLA Talk 1580 as one of the places he would speak to on this day, the day his book comes out. It's called Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. Uh, The book is out on the um, eve of the third anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, which will commemorate this Thursday right on this station and on this program. A.G. Ellison, I love you, man. Nothing you can do about it. Thank you for your time, sir. brother. You're the best. See you later. Talk to you soon. Take care. Hour three of Tavis Smiley when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580.